To say that New Orleans is a unique city is a huge understatement. Located along the Mississippi River in southeast Louisiana, its history as a major port city has kept it thriving since it was founded in 1718 by French colonists. Being a port city, many cultures have found their way into the bayou over time, and you'll find life in the city absolutely brimming with variety. The Big Easy is world famous for its Creole cuisine, which itself is a blending of cooking style from cultures that pass through its city streets. We're talking West African, French, Spanish, Caribbean, traditional Southern and Native American. Creole, or less formally Cajun cuisine, is based on its own holy trinity of ingredients, onions, celery, and green peppers. Gumbo is one of the most popular examples of a Creole dish, and for good reason. It's basically a variation of a meat stew, but instead of beef roast, carrots, and potatoes, it's packed with any combination of shrimp, crab, crawfish, spicy sausage, alligator, oh, duck, deer, or wild hog. Seriously, I, I can't say it enough. Alligator, if you haven't tried it, you need to. It is so good. The dish is seasoned with dried and ground up sassafras leaves called filet powder and served over rice. The African colonists would contribute okra to be part of the dish. And Native Americans were the ones who showed us the use for sassafras leaves, which gives it that earthy, savory flavor that's a staple in pretty much every Creole de cuisine. From the Spaniards, we got peppers and tomatoes, as well as spices that were brought over from the Caribbean. The French stylized the dish as a thick roux over a less watery preparation, and the Italians obviously decided to kick it up a notch with some garlic. Bakeries and kitchens in Louisiana were predominantly owned by French and German immigrants, and eventually, buttered French bread became an essential part of a plate of gumbo, with a side of German-style potato salad. It kind of reminds me of that story about the guy who brags that he can make the world's best soup with just a rock in his hand. He goes around town and tells everyone that he's planning to make this perfect soup, and all he has is a stupid rock in his pocket, so they all feel bad for him. And little by little, everyone in town gives him a few ingredients. And in the end, he's got this heaping pot of this amazing soup that, in reality, the whole town contributed to. And we're just talking about the gumbo. I haven't even talked about jambalaya, dirty rice, crawfish boils, or uh, Cajun boudin. Jennifer, if you're listening, Crystal and I still, to this day, obsess over those boudin balls you made when you had us over for dinner from years back. Oh man, I'd love to have some of those again. But moving on, Creole itself is a name that is specific to the descendants of the Louisiana colonies before the U.S. purchased the land from the French and Spanish. The majority of those colonists varied from origin from Africa, France, Spain, and native tribes. The Creole folk embraced their origins, and a little bit like the folks up in Quebec, you can still hear traces of a French-based language among the locals. However, according to a recent survey, today, less than 10,000 people fully speak the Creole language. The majority of them obviously still live in Louisiana, mostly in secluded or more rural parts of the state, or amongst those in the community who have deep roots in the area. Creole is actually considered an endangered language because it's so dramatically running out of people who are fluent. But then there's also the music. Another perfect example, listen to me, another perfect example of how cultures can collide to make things wholly unique and awesome. When you think of New Orleans, you may think of blues or jazz music, and you wouldn't be wrong. But you should also be thinking of another genre that was born and bred in the swamps and bayous, and that's Zydeco. Zydeco 
is a type of Cajun music that incorporates blues, jazz, and straight-up swamp music that uses a full range of instruments like washboards and spoons, accordions and jugs, as well as traditional instruments like pianos, flutes, uh, fiddles, guitars, brass horns, and percussion. Zydeco is often sung not just in English, but in colonial French and Creole as well, or it can be, more often than not, purely instrumental. Zydeco is one of those genres that doesn't really travel that far from its place of origin, even more so than, let's say, uh, Mexican corrido. If I were to mention a few performers like Clif Clifton Chenier, Buckwheat Zydeco, Buzu Chavez, or Rockin' Dopsy, you probably won't know who I'm talking about, unless you aren't a little more than familiar with the genre. Over in the UK, there was this band in the 1970s called Mungo Jerry. They touched a little bit on trying to recreate that folksy Southern American Zydeco sound with that one song, uh, In the Summertime. I personally like that song. It's fun, it's uplifting, and even if it misses the mark just a bit, I'd give them credit for their efforts still. But I couldn't really get into this topic today without going over some of the history of the one of the most unique cities in the country, and I barely grazed the surface at that. But after all, this is the human delicatessen, and that means we're not going to be talking about the great things you can see and the food you can eat in New Orleans. This episode is about a serial killer who broke into people's homes in the cover of night, and he would bludgeon people to death with an axe or cut their throats open with a straight razor while they slept. He would steal nothing and kill without clear motive or mercy. He didn't hold a personal grudge, and the crimes weren't driven by money or sex. To all of those who were familiar with the story, he seemed simply to enjoy the killing. He was never caught, or was never identified. The killer, dubbed the Axeman, operated in New Orleans on May, from May 1918 until October 1919, so it is very unlikely he'd still be around today. His attacks, though, were so savage and brutal that it seemed like every one of them was driven by some personal rage, even though the victims seemed random and without any association to each other. The only thing that could quiet his murderous beasts inside of him from killing and painting the room red with blood was, oddly enough, jazz music. At least, that's what he told the newspapers. So, hello, and welcome back to another episode. I'm Chris, your host, and now that we familiarize ourselves a little bit with New Orleans, maybe just a little better than before, let's get into it and talk about its most famous serial killer. The attacks began without warning, and to preface these events before we begin, keep in mind that these crimes took place in 1918 and the following year. The majority of the victims were first-generation foreign immigrants. Public records were less than perfect in those days, especially concerning immigrants, and the information concerning the victims and involved parties may have been inaccurate or incomplete, which is why as you're listening, you may notice that the transition from one attack to the next can come off as rather abrupt and without the room for a proper transition or follow-up. Joseph Maggio was an Italian immigrant that worked as a grocer. He and his wife Catherine laid in bed asleep on the night of May 23, 1918 when a man broke into their home while they were asleep. The man happened across a straight razor that was in the bathroom, and without a moment of hesitation, he took the blade and cut both of their throats while they were still sleeping. For good measure, he picked up his axe that he had brought along, and based on the evidence, he began to frantically hack at the couple as if he was chopping firewood. 
He then stripped out of his bloody clothes and changed into a clean outfit that he had prepared before the attack. He left the bloody clothes where they lie, and he dropped the axe and razor out in the yard as he, crossed, as he left the house and crossed the yards. Catherine was cut so deep that she was almost decapitated. If any of you have ever felt the edge of a straight razor, uh, morbidly also called a throat cutter, uh, they are extremely sharp. I have a few at home, and uh, the ease and the closeness of a shave definitely leaves room for such a savage attack. Joseph was still alive, but only barely. He lay there next to his wife for two hours in agony before he was discovered by his brother Andrew, who had been sleeping down the hall. Joseph died only minutes later after being found. Andrew was almost immediately a suspect, since when they found the bloody razor, uh, it had his name engraved on it, but after questioning him about an alibi, he was eventually cleared. On June 27th, Louis Brasumer, another grocery store owner, and his mistress, Harriet Lowe, were in the sleeping quarters in the back of his store when he was struck in the temple with a hatchet while they were both asleep. They both began getting attacked by the axe, and during the attack, a swipe with the axe had almost completely removed Harriet's left ear. The couple would lay in bed in a growing pool of their own blood until 7 a.m. when the bakery delivery guy came in the morning to make a drop-off and went on looking for the owner. Once the police and the medics had arrived, they found that both Louise and Harriet were both alive, but she was unconscious from all the blood loss. They also found that the axe that had been used on the couple was in the restroom of the apartment, and it was discovered to actually have belonged to Luis in the first place. The police immediately suspected a 40-year-old black man that had been hired as an employee by Luis a few weeks prior and placed him under arrest. But he was released later on because they were unable to disprove his alibi. And since there was nothing stolen from the apartment or the store, uh, robbery was off the table, and they had to consider other motives. It gets a little messier, too. See, when the police officers were searching Luis's apartment, they found a bundle of letters in his apartment that were written in German, Russian, and uh, Yiddish. And the police suspected him initially, or at least the detectives, of being a German spy, and they arrested him for possibly committing espionage of some sort, at least until those letters were translated, or could be. He was released just two days later, uh, and the lead investigators who pushed that theory that he was a spy were immediately demoted to desk work for unacceptable police policies. But Luis was arrested again in August, just after Harriet, his former uh, mistress, had kind of made herself the center of attention in the media by making several false claims to the newspapers and suggesting that Luis was actually a spy in the first place. Once the police had revealed to the public that Harriet was Luis's mistress and not his legal wife, um, which was kind of a scandal. Uh, he, he was married, but they were separated. But back in those times, being someone's mistress and not being a proper wife was, you know, I guess that's synonymous with being a floozy back then, just a part of the times. Anyway, this would be a, 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 an insult to her. And as a res response to that, she would publicly begin insulting the New Orleans chief of police, uh, basically badmouthing him making her own theories about his behavior and she refused to cooperate any further as far as how the crime went. Um, around that same time, actually, um, not long after, Harriet was actually dying from an infection she had gotten from a botched surgery from trying to correct some of the injuries she had gotten. And as she was dying, 
she still claimed that it was Luis who had attacked her because he had threatened to kill her with the axe about a month prior. Apparently, the cops who bought her story in the middle of her delirium were the same two idiots who thought the grocer was an international spy for the Triple Alliance. Uh, I can't confirm that, but it sounds like it. But because despite Lewis being attacked as well, he was arrested for murder, and by extension for causing the death of Harriet Lowe, and would serve nine months in prison during the trial until he was finally acquitted after the jury only took ten minutes to deliberate. It's a a gross mishandling of justice to think that hearsay can, can cause a man to be locked up for nine months without a shred of evidence. Four days after uh, Lewis was released from jail, this would have been about August 5th, 1918, a 28-year-old Anna Schneider, who was at that time eight months very pregnant, uh, woke up from her sleep at her apartment and, and briefly saw a man standing over her bed before she was repeatedly hit in the face with a blunt object and lost consciousness. Uh, she wasn't found until after midnight when her husband came home from working a late shift. She looked like a wreck, and her face and her scalp had been covered in lacerations and blood, but she was alive. She couldn't recall anything from the attack and gave birth to a healthy baby just two days later, at least on a lighter note. She had apparently been beaten with a table lamp that had been inside the house. A suspect for the arrest uh, was arrested for the crime, and when police had approached the man, he immediately fled. He just took off. But he was eventually, when after some questioning, was released when he had a solid alibi. And he confessed that the reason why he ran in the first place was because he was an ex-convict. And he was used to some level of police harassment and being pinpointed for any crime that they could conveniently match him for. On August 10th, 1918, Joseph Romano, an elderly man, was living with his nieces, Pauline and Mary. In the middle of the night, on August 10th, the two women were woken up by the sound of some kind of commotion coming from their uncle's room. When they went to check on Joseph, they were momentarily shocked to see a dark-skinned, yet not necessarily black, heavy-set man in a dark suit with a cut hat cocked to the side, and they saw him bolting from the room in a panic. This would have been the first and really only solid look at the supposed Axeman, who he had been dubbed in the papers by then. They found Joseph still conscious, but suffering two gashes to his skull from the attack. Just like the previous attacks, a bloody axe wound was found in the yard of the Romano property. Joseph seemed to not be too bad worse for wear after the attack, because he was even able to walk himself to the ambulance vehicle. But at the hospital, he would unfortunately passed away a few days later from the severe head trauma that he had sustained. The Axeman had entered the house by quietly chiseling away at a piece of the back door panel and then proceeded to ransack the house on his way to Joseph's bedroom. Since Pauline and Mary had interrupted the Axeman during the attack, that might explain why, despite evidence of the house had been rummaged through, nothing was actually taken. And I think it stands to the reason that the two women might have narrowly escaped being victims as well if they hadn't woken up and interrupted their plan, his plans. And then things were quiet for almost a year. Things began to quiet down in New Orleans, uh, at least in regards to the news about a certain axe-wielding psychopath. Unfortunately though, that wouldn't last forever, because on March 10th of 1919, the killer found himself wandering the streets of Gretna, a suburb of New Orleans that lies on the other side of the Mississippi. 
Orlando Giordano, a grocer closing his shop after a late evening, heard screams coming from a house down the street. A house he knew belonged to the Cortamiglia family. Orlando rushed to the house and gained entry to check on the family of three. The family had, like other previous attacks, had been attacked while they were sleeping. Charles Cortamiglia was found lying on the floor, lying in a few pints of his own blood that was oozing out of his fractured skull. His wife, Rose, was standing near a door threshold in a daze, also bleeding from a blow to the head and a skull fracture. Both would eventually recover, but as you recall, this is a family of three, and unfortunately, the same could not be said for Mary, their two-year-old daughter. See, when the killer had crept into their bedroom and swung his axe down on the sleeping family, Mary was asleep on her mother's chest at the time and was struck savagely on the back of her neck. The Cordomiglias had suffered a devastating attack and the couple found themselves suddenly no longer parents. It's something that no one should have to go through. After Rose had recovered from more of her injuries, she spoke to the police and claimed to know the identity of her attackers or their attackers, meaning plural. She insisted that Irlando, the grocer who had first heard their screams and rushed to find them, along with his 18-year-old son Frank, had actually committed the attack that almost killed her and Charles and had murdered their daughter. This is despite the fact that Irlando was 69 years old at the time and in poor health and could not have uh, committed that kind of crime. Or the fact that Frank, his son, was over 6 feet tall and 200 pounds, and he was way too large to have fit through that tiny hole that the attacker had chiseled in the back door to be able to squeeze through. On a side note, I keep on going back to this. I can't help but think that chiseling a hole through a door seems in general like a very odd and inefficient way to enter a house. I mean, even for 1919, when door locks were still fairly basic and rudimentary, you'd think that picking locks or prying a window or door open with a crowbar would logically make a lot more sense. But I guess the police who were working this case were still not much wiser than the ones who initially bought Harriet Lowe's story that her boyfriend was the Axeman, because Irlando and Frank were promptly arrested and sentenced to life and death by hanging, respectively, for the accusations made by Rose. Charles, the husband, apparently had a lick of common sense, and he vehemently denied this outlandish claim that his wife had made up, and he would end up divorcing her actually a year, uh, not long after, because of this ordeal. Almost a year after the fact, a whole year, uh, while Irlando and Frank were in prison, uh, Rose finally fessed up and admitted that she had falsely accused, consciously, the father and son, stemming from her jealousy or spite from Irlando's business success and financial standing. Irlando and his son were released immediately afterward. Rose's statement was the only piece of evidence that quote-unquote of their involvement, so there was nothing to tie them there. And I know that it's in our nature to have sympathy for the victims here because that tr truly was tragic to, to lose your daughter. Uh, but you also have to wonder what kind of awful person Rose had to be to use this traumatic event as an opportunity for pettiness. She knew they didn't do it, but she saw an opportunity to blame them for it, and she did that anyway. And what makes the fact that Irlando and his son sat in jail for almost a year even more absurd is that just days after the attack, just days, a letter had arrived at a local newspaper believed to have been written by the Axeman himself. 
and you have to ask yourself why were they still in prison after this letter released. The letter had a return address written as hell and read as follows. Esteemed mortal, they have never caught me and they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible, even as the ether that surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what your Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axeman. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know who they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe, besmeared with the blood and the brains of he whom I have sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as to not amuse me, not only amuse me, but also his satanic majesty and Francis Joseph, etc. But tell them to beware. Let them not try to discover what I am, for it were better that they were never born than to incur the wrath of the Axeman. I don't think there is much need for a warning, for I feel that the police will always dodge me as they have in the past. They are wise and know how to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you Orleanians think of me as a most horrible murderer, which I am, but I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished, I could pay a visit to your city every night. At will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens, for I am in close relationship with the Angel of Death. Now, to be exact, at 12.15 Earthly Time on next Tuesday night, I'm going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I'm going to make a little proposition for you people, and here it is. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has jazz band going well, then so much better for you people. One thing is certain is that some of your people who do not jazz it out on that specific Tuesday night, if there be any, will meet my axe. Well, as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tartarus, and it is about time I leave your earthly home, I will seize my discourse. Hoping that will publish this, that it may go well with thee, I have been, am, and will be the worst spear that ever existed in fact or realm of fantasy. The Axeman. About five months after that attack on the Cordomiglia family, another grocer, Steve Boca, was attacked while he slept in his bed on the night of August 10th. Oh, I should mention, um, that night from the letter, I can't believe I spaced over that, um, reportedly in the news, all the jazz music houses in New Orleans were packed to the brim and jazz could be heard all through the city and there were no crimes that night. But back to August 10th. Boca had been awakened by the sound of an intruder standing over his bed, but then he was promptly rendered unconscious by a blow to the, the head with a blunt object. He would, in his mind, almost immediately regain consciousness and run into the street to see if he could track down the intruder, but they were long gone by then. He discovered 
that the intruder would have chiseled away a portion of the black back door in order to get in the house. And he also discovered that he had a cracked skull. Mr. Boca was unable to recollect the attack or get a firm visual on his assailant before he was hit over the head and knocked out cold. On September 3rd, 1919, Sarah Lawman was 19 years old and lived alone in New Orleans. The neighbors drew concern that she hadn't come home out of her apartment at her usual time and wasn't answering her door when they knocked. A few of them managed to break into where she lived and looked around to see if she was okay. They found Sarah unconscious in her bed. Several of her teeth had been knocked out and she was bleeding from wounds around her head. There was no back door to chisel, though, and she had left, but she had left her window open before she went to bed, which was how the attacker was able to get inside. Outside of the yard, another bloody axe was found discarded in the grass. Sarah survived the attack, but unsurprisingly, she could too not recall any of the details of the attack. The last murder attributed to the axeman was committed a month later, on October 27th of 1919, when the unnamed wife of Michael Pepitone, I think that's how you pronounce that, was awakened to the sight of her husband being attacked by an axe-wielding man in a hat and coat. At her alarmed response, the axeman was spooked and fled the scene without turning his axe onto her. The blows that Michael had received were reported to be so savage that blood had covered much of the bedroom walls. Although Michael was killed in the attic, or in, I'm sorry, I don't even know why I said that. Although Michael was killed in the attack, Lucky, his wife, and six children remained unharmed. Again, no details were able to be collected on the notorious Axeman's description. Remember how earlier when I said how poorly public records were back in those days? And you might ask yourself why I'm not mentioning the name of Michael's wife. That's because even in the newspapers that wrote about this last attack, she was only ever mentioned as the woman or the wife of Michael. And it was never officially recorded in the media, though it was speculated and not confirmed that her name was Esther. Now, as far as suspects go, there was a suspect that was mentioned in the papers back then, and the name has been carried down the decades by a, na by a man by the name of Frank Mumphrey, who may have gone by the alias Joseph Mumphrey. So Mumphrey, Mumphrey, a uh, common name for the region. The story goes that Mumphrey had a criminal history around New Orleans that may have had ties with organized crime in the area. Mumphrey was also known to have a serious axe to grind, unintentional pwn, not intended, uh, against the immigrant population in the city, which may explain why all the victims were Italian immigrants. A story ran in the Los Angeles newspaper in 1920 that a man known by the name of Joseph Monfrey had been shot to death by the widow of Michael Pepitone. While that sounds like a nice ending, full disclosure though, we can only take it with a grain of salt because again, public records being what they were, there is no official public record of a man by the name of Monfrey being killed or assaulted in LA and no arrest records for a Miss Esther Pepitone exists. The only thing that inches this information closer to reality than urban legend is the fact that there were no more victims after the supposed X-Men from that moment moving forward. And that wraps it up for America's own version of Jack the Ripper. The X-Men was never caught, and it's likely he disappeared in the shadows just as silently as he arrived. Or perhaps maybe he returned from hell from whence he came if his letter was an admission of his true form.
as a final musical anecdote, actually yeah, a musical anecdote, that's accurate, uh, Joseph John Davia, a local songwriter from the New Orleans music scene, wrote this instrumental little piano ditty called The Mysterious Axeman's Jazz in 1919. You can check it out on YouTube. It's an oddly jolly song considering their inspiration is a person known for breaking into houses and beating people to death with an axe while they slept. I'll be honest, I'm not a fan of it. But then again, I'm not really a big fan of most subgenres of jazz music in the first place. For my opinions, this uh, professor I took for rhetoric called me a Philistine for not liking music where a dozen musicians are all playing different solos at the same time. I'm sorry, Mr. A, it's just not my thing. You don't need to be an asshole about it. Next week, we're going to talk about the murder of Bobby Kent, whose execution-type murder was planned for weeks by people he would have considered his closest friends. But you don't find yourself murdered by your friends uh, without there being a reason for it. It's not really done on a whim. So we're going to take a look into the friendship dynamics between these barely adult kids from Florida and talk about what may have driven seven of them to conspire to take part in the stabbing and beating death of one of their own. It's going to be one of those episodes where, by the end of it, you might feel a little conflicted on where you stand with things. I hope you guys are all doing okay, and you're taking good care of yourselves. And if you decide to put on a little jazz music before you go to bed tonight, I won't judge. Remember to like, share, subscribe, and all that jazz, eh? see what I did there, to the Human Delicatessen Podcast, available on Spotify, Apple, and Anchor. Feel free to drop me a comment or any ideas you have for future episodes on the Human Deli Contestant Facebook page or at my email, thehumandelipodcast at gmail.com. And remember, y'all be excellent to each other. And we'll talk again next week. Adios.